one of my greatest memories is on tour with Whitney Houston. The venue essentially looked like a castle courtyard. So there's a stage and then you saw like lit up castle walls. And it was the beginning of the song, I Will Always Love You. And I looked out and everybody had sparklers or lighters lit. It was just a sea of lights. The whole first verse I don't play. And I just kind of sat there and took it in. I was like, wow, this is what I dreamt of doing when I was in the dorm rooms. Behind every favorite artist, song, or lyric is a story you've never heard. In Voices Behind the Music, we go much deeper than the frontman you hear on the album or the guitarist you see on stage. People from all aspects of the music industry work together to make the business what it is and are often some of the busiest but nicest, funniest, and smartest people out there. I'm Jeff Yasuda, CEO at Feed Media Group the creators behind the leading B2B music licensing platform. Join me as I sit down with some of my favorite voices behind the music to hear their insider stories about what makes the music industry so exciting. All right, today I am here with the amazingly talented Taku Hirano, percussionist extraordinaire whom Mick Fleetwood describes as his secret weapon. Taku has toured with Fleetwood Mac and Whitney Houston and has performed with Lionel Richie, Dr. Dre, Ziggy Marley, Chromio, Dr. John, and John Mayer, just to name a few. I first met Taku at the Hong Kong International School years and years ago, but Taku later went on to graduate from the Berklee School of Music as the college's first hand percussion principal. He is one half of the duo Tao of Sound, which has done remixes for Kanye West and Kataro, and has released four albums for the Japanese label Domo Music Group. Taku, though most excitingly, is also releasing his first solo album called Blue York Live in New York City as a solo artist on Modern Icon Records, but I think most importantly, in the immediate future, he will be on a 30-date tour starting November 11th through December 21st all across the U.S. with ukulele phenom Jake Shimabukuro, and he will be a special artist on that tour. Taku, thank hey, you hey. so much for joining us, buddy. Thanks. Taku, let's kick it off with your solo album. This is a new thing. You know, I've had a chance to listen to it. I love it. You know, the uh, heavy Herbie Hancock jazz elements to it. Oh, yeah. Tell us about it and your thinking and thesis behind the album. Well, it started out with me getting together with a couple former schoolmates at Berklee College of Music in New York City and us kind of reminiscing about all the great fun music that we played back in school on each other's recitals and recording sessions. The music was all of that 70s jazz fusion era of Miles Electric Band, Herbie Hancock, George Duke, Billy Cobham, and, you know, we all collectively missed playing that stuff. We all had our careers go in varying directions. I went more in the pop, rock, and R&B world. And Adrian Harpum, who runs Modern Icon Recordings underneath the Ropadope Records label, he is a great drummer. And um, he you know, went on to a career playing with a lot of funk and indie rock artists. And then uh, a third friend of ours, Bruce Flowers, a great keyboardist, he went more in the jazz route, being the keyboardist for Marcus Miller and uh, David Sanborn. So all of us went in completely different directions, but we all used to play each other's recitals and had a love for that era of jazz and jazz fusion. It came about as 
why don't we just book some gigs and play all that stuff that we used to play together before, you know, and just have fun. And I spearheaded it with our blessing and it became my project. And we started booking gigs around New York and that eventually turned into a live album. I decided to use the recordings of the live shows and mix and master and put out a live album as my debut release. Well, it is truly remarkable. The technical complexity and your virtuosity is Thank very you. apparent and it was a joy to listen to. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what would you say, what is your genre? What is your style? I mean, you've played jazz, funk, you've done rock. We, I want to hear all about the Fleetwood Mac tour in, yep. in a second, which of course is the last time I saw you performing yep. live. Uh-huh. But where are you gravitating towards? You know, you are multi-genre, multi-talented, but what is your center per se? You know, I think my center is more of a jazz bass, which I like to say with this debut album, that's my return to jazz because when I went to Berklee College of Music, that was my focus. I went there for jazz drum set and studying Afro-Cuban and Afro-Brazilian traditional and popular music and Afro-Cuban jazz. So after I left Hong Kong International School, I moved back to California for 11th and 12th grade. And the School of the Arts that I went to had a salsa band and a Latin jazz combo. And that's where I first learned how to play what they call hand percussion, basically like congas, bongos. So I fell in love with that. And then so by the time I went to college for jazz drum set, I brought along all of my hand percussion instruments with me. And I was able to eventually halfway through college switch over to hand percussion being my principal instrument. Right. So that's really what my training is in is learning like Latin jazz, Brazilian jazz, jazz fusion and traditional jazz. So that that's kind of my first love in terms of non-classical Western popular music. So I got to ask you, man, touring with Fleetwood Mac, Mick Fleetwood, I remember at the concert described you as his secret weapon. Yeah. Yeah. That's a stick name for me. How did you meet these guys? How did this happen? I mean, were you starstruck at every moment, you know, even rehearsing with them? First of all, is being starstruck. The funny thing is every major artist I've played for, I feel like I was not necessarily a fan of their music <laughs> before okay. I worked with them. Okay. So, I mean, like a, a lot of the major artists I worked for, I saw their videos on MTV or I listened to their stuff on the radio, but I like, I never owned a Fleetwood Mac album. I never owned a Whitney Houston album. I think the one artist that I worked for, for a short stint, whose albums I own and who I was a fan of was John Mayer. But besides him, I think every other artist, like I actually had to do my homework. So when I got the call, I was like, okay, game on. I got to learn their whole repertoire of music and buy all their albums and, and learn inside out. So I think that when those calls came, I didn't have time to be starstruck. You know, I was just like, like I said, game on. I got to get my, my act together. And then you asked me how, how did Fleetwood Mac come about? I was doing the Lionel Richie gig and a tour manager, actually an Asian American guy from the Bay Area, Marty Hom, he recommended me for a one-off corporate gig with Stevie Nicks. Her regular percussionist was busy. The, the sub that had been doing the handful of corporate dates that she had was busy for that one show in San Diego. And so he recommended me and it was on a tour break from Lionel Richie. And so I went down and I did the gig it went really well. She asked to see me after the show, and that was in 2000. And then nothing 
just kept working with Lionel Richie, heard nothing from, from that camp. And then Lionel had a corporate show in Maui and Stevie Nicks came and brought Mick Fleetwood. And it was like, it was like a corporate show for like Lexus or something like that. And they were just backstage. <laughs> and then that tour manager, Marty, he said, Hey, Stevie Nicks is here. You should go say hi. I was like, okay, cool. You know, I just said, Oh, it's really good to see you. <laughs> she remembered me and she introduced me to Mick and then Mick and I just talked drums for a while. And I did not realize that I was being, I was auditioning for the upcoming Fleetwood Mac tour. Wow. Because wow. Stevie Nicks percussionist also did the Fleetwood Mac gig. And I, I remember kind of putting it into the universe back then, three years prior, like, wow, that Stevie Nicks one-off gig was fun. I would never get a gig, that particular gig, but one day I'm just putting it out there in the universe that I would love to get a gig like Fleetwood Mac, you know, because I had such a good time. So fast forward three years later, I actually got the call for it. That is crazy. Now you yeah. said something that kind of threw me. So you did a show yeah. with Stevie Nicks. Yep. Yeah. You probably have to do a couple rehearsals before that show. Yeah, a few days, like maybe two, three days of rehearsal in, in Los Angeles. But did you really interact with her? I mean, why is it that she requested to meet with you after? Couldn't she have just walked over and said, hey, Taku, let's talk right now? Oh, well, at the end of the gig, after the show, you know, you generally don't see the artist again. They walk off stage, the band's still playing the music, you know, and playing them off stage, and then the, the show wow. ends, and then the band goes to their... You go to your dressing room and in a case like in San Diego, she could easily be already like on the road going back, going back to her home in LA by the time we were like, you know, back in our dressing room. So there's, there's oftentimes, you know, you don't see the artist until the next city or, or the next gig if you're on tour because they leave the stage before the band does. On a Fleetwood Mac tour, I don't necessarily see Stevie until the next sound check. Wow. That is so crazy. So it, it's really a siloed experience where you're in to do your part and people just disperse yeah especially with a big artist like that you know i'm sure it's like that for somebody backing up miley cyrus or you know taylor swift they walk off the stage and they they may possibly get straight into a, a car and go straight to their jet and fly to the next city wow. that blows my mind right and <laughs> and the reason it blows my mind is so much about performing live is the connection so much about music period but particularly performing live and particularly as you get more and more technical uh -huh. in a word communication is so critical right there's that camaraderie there's that element of being in the moment together making a connection maybe yeah. is a better way of saying it yeah. but that i mean there's that connection at sound checks and pre-show it's mm -hmm. just that after the shows everyone tends to like get out <laughs> get, get out and get to the next city but during the process, though, there's a lot of that connection and you can go through ideas. I see. I see. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and like with Fleetwood Mac, we rehearse the first Fleetwood Mac tour I ever did in 03. We rehearsed for three months. So we saw each other every day or Monday through Friday for three months. I see. So you did spend a lot of time and there was a oh, really definitely. close rapport. Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely. And then in each city, like you do have a sound check and, you know, so you physically see each other before you hit the stage, but, but yeah. So let's talk about this, particularly as a master percussionist, everyone makes mistakes. What was your worst mistake that you made either on tour in a recording and how did you recover? There was one really funny thing that happened. It was on the Whitney Houston tour and it's a period in the show where 
Whitney walks off stage to do a wardrobe change. And during the wardrobe change, a screen comes down and there's a whole video montage, but the music is being played live by the band. And it's a medley of songs. So it's like probably four different songs, snippets of songs that, that flow one into another. And it was a video montage of music from The Bodyguard. So it had footage of from the movie and this and that, the other. And we'd play like four different songs that segued one into each other. And I was surrounded by all these electronic pads. And generally, like from song to song to song, I have a whole different setup. So I click a button, all of a sudden, all my electronic pads will, all the sounds will change per song. And I decided to make a montage kit. So that means that all my electronic pads encompassed four songs worth of sounds. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a lot of ballads. And it was the ballad run to you was happening. And it was like, you know, sweeping strings. And, and I motioned over to my tech because I was trying to hit this one pad and it wasn't working for some reason. What I didn't realize was the cord had pulled out halfway. But the thing is when you pop the cord in, it triggers whatever's on the pad. (laughs) And then this is getting really technical, but it's a two zone pad. Meaning that if you picture a round electronic pad that you hit, the center of the pad is one sound and the rim of the pad is another sound. I had put the last note of the entire medley. The last song of the entire medley was uh, the song Queen of the Night, which was like a rocking song with distortion guitar, last notes and explosion. But the center of the pad was like something delicate, like finger snaps or something for like a ballad, like run to you. And I'm like hitting on the ballad part of the song, I'm hitting the pads, not working. I'm like, I motioned over to my tech, come over here. And he's like, oh, it's not plugged in all the way. So he plugs it in and it oh. it triggers this gigantic explosion sample oh, oh God! in the middle of the ballad. Oh. Thank, thank God she wasn't on stage, but all the stagehands, all the crew, everyone ran to the wings because they actually thought the sound was like either the screen or a lighting truss falling on top of the band, like on stage. They thought it was like an actual physical accident that was happening on stage. Oh my God. It was literally just a sample of an explosion (laughs) for the last note of the entire medley. That would just kind of mask and melded in with distortion guitars and, you know, the drummer hitting the cymbals and whatnot, but in the middle of a ballad, you know, (laughs) so the lesson was, first of all, check all your electronics, do a dummy check even if you have a tech that takes care of that stuff and also compartmentalize your sounds per kit so that you have no cross-pollination. I learned that definitely the hard way. Wow. (laughs) That is a a crazy story. That is a crazy story. So Taku, as you developed yourself as a young musician, talk to us about your parents. Were they supportive? Did they push you away from music? What was their involvement in helping you develop as a as a young musician my parents were really supportive and i feel like early on i was pretty serious about it i started percussion at the age of nine and my earliest recollection of wanting to play some kind of drum was at the age of four i don't really recall telling my parents this but my mother told me whatever instrument i want to play i have to have two years of piano prior to that so by the age of seven i started piano so i got to figure that at age six or seven, I said, I wanted to play percussion. And then it was like, okay, let me start taking piano lessons so I can study what I want to two years from now. So early on, I felt like I was pretty focused, at least for a kid of that age. And then immediately at age nine, I was living in Fresno, California. They had a really good music program. 
and a really great percussion teacher. So I had played in orchestras, concert bands, a percussion ensemble, and I went to her home every week for a private lesson. And then fast forward, I moved to Hong Kong in seventh grade. And the first thing was like, find a percussion teacher. And I ended up studying with the principal percussionist at the Hong Kong Philharmonic. And then later wow. with the principal timpanist of the Hong Kong Philharmonic. And that during that whole period it was like training for Juilliard. I want to go to Juilliard and be a classical percussionist. So all that to say, my parents saw me, like I had the drive and the interest in it. It was just kind of like, all right, well, let's see how far he goes with it. And then I think that by deciding to go to music school for, for my undergrad, by then they knew that I wanted to pursue music as a vocation as opposed to Got a hobby. It. Yeah. Got it. So what advice would you give to a young musician about potentially choosing music as a career vocation and really developing yourself as a musician and trying to figure out what choices to make, whether to pursue this full time or as my parents had suggested to keep it as a hobby. <laughs> I think the most important thing is to seek out teachers and hopefully that teacher is or has been a professional to some degree so that you can kind of see firsthand what it's like and if that's if that's for you the lifestyle is for you and then as far as music in general it's just no matter what instrument it is embrace music you know you have to love music you have to be into all various styles of music if you want to be a working musician you can't just be like i am a funk drummer and i'm only going to play funk music and it's like that's great, but you may not be able to make a living doing that. Being a working musician, you definitely have to have an understanding of various genres and various techniques. Got it. Well, you seem to have nerves of steel, but before some of these huge gigs in front of, in arenas, in front of tens of thousands of people. I mean, I have the luxury of being, I'm backing up the artist who the pressure's really on them, right? So it's short of me being worried about executing some crucial parts. I'm not too worried. You know, most of the time on a major, major tour, we've already rehearsed for a month or two months. And so I'm already ready to go. There are some nerve wracking moments, depending on what tour it is, you know, where my role is super crucial for a specific moment in the show, or maybe the whole show, you know, and that's when I'm kind of like, I won't say I'm nervous walking on stage, but at the moment where I have to execute something like I'm hyper focused, so it doesn't screw up. You know, case in point, like I'm on tour with Bette Midler, who I've worked with since 2004, and part of her show is skits. There are moments where I'm like, there is some gag or skit that's supposed to happen where the phone rings, she picks it up and she says something, and I'm in charge of the phone ring. <laughs> and I have to wait for her to say a line. I'm watching a video screen because it's slightly different every night. I'm about to hit an electronic pad with the phone ring on it, you know? Yes, I'm just like waiting. So that kind of stuff is severely nerve wracking. Yeah, uh, make sure that the explosion doesn't Yeah, happen. exactly. <laughs> and then one other thing is like, I went on tour with Lindsey Buckingham, the guitarist for Fleetwood Mac. What started out with was him saying, oh, I'm looking to do an acoustic unplugged tour and, you know, not really looking for you to play any drum kit, drum set. But, you know, you play cajon and little handheld instruments. I'm like, okay, that's easy. And then little by little, it's like, oh, I'm thinking of adding this Fleetwood Mac tune. So it definitely needs some drum set in it, you know? So then like all of a sudden my little percussion kit starts morphing into like a drum set. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm really out of my comfort zone there where I'm like, okay, I, this is not necessarily what, you know, 
I signed up for was like to be the drummer on tour, you know, dealing with tempos and count offs and cutoffs and endings and stuff like that. I'm kind of like, oh, okay, this is like a lot more responsibility. So uh, you did morph into the drummer on that show. Oh, yeah. Effectively. Or? Yeah. I was sitting on a cajon, which is like the box drum that you sit on and playing shakers and cajon. But then like a whole other half of the show, the cajon was essentially a drum stool because I had like electronic pedals. I was playing kick, snare and hat and cymbals and toms. Yeah, I was playing a drum kit. I was definitely wow. driving the ship and, and I was just in my own head, just making sure things wouldn't fall apart. <laughs> That's amazing for yeah. the Lindsay Buckingham. Incredible. Yeah. So your list of performers with whom you've played is incredible. It's also incredibly long. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but I would say Fleetwood Mac. I mean, that's the most recent. That's the most fun. I'm looking forward to this upcoming tour I'm about to do with Jake Shimabukuro. It's going to be on the flip side. You know, I'm literally just going to be going on tour with a cajon, <laughs> you know, so it's like super okay. bare bones, but like just able to just like jam every night. I think the qualifier for fun gigs for me is like low stress, at least on stage. So, yeah. Awesome. So a couple rapid fire, fast questions. What was your first album that you purchased? First album that I purchased was probably also the first live concert I went to, which was Toto 4. So, wow. Yeah. My drum teacher took me when I was in probably fifth grade, shortly after I started. She was a huge Jeff Picaro fan, who was the drummer for Toto. And Toto came to Fresno. That was the album with Rosanna and Africa. Of course. And uh, so I think that was, I probably bought that on cassette, like either right before the concert or right after. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. The The next question is, what was the favorite concert that you attended as uh -huh. a listener? Yeah. And what was the favorite concert performance that you performed in? Favorite concert that I have attended probably hands down as Paul McCartney 2004 back in the US tour. I was living in Atlanta and I'd already worked with Lionel Richie for four years and Lionel's manager at the time was based in the UK and he was Paul McCartney's business manager. And so they came into town, we had dinner with the manager and he invited us to the show. And, you know, I was like, okay, this is fantastic. Get to see Paul McCartney. Didn't know really what to expect, but it was like, okay, this is going to be really fun. And I was absolutely blown away and then that. what about the favorite show that you have performed in favorite show that i performed in wow one of my greatest memories is on tour with whitney houston because that was the first major major tour i'd ever done it's my first time in europe and we toured europe for four months straight so i got to like really live on the road and have days off where i just did, did all the sightseeing and, and you know just kind of hang out all over europe there was that one show in Mannheim, Germany, and it was the venue essentially looked like a castle courtyard. So there's a stage and then you saw like lit up castle walls and the entire audience was in front of us. In that show, I kind of sat back. It was the beginning of the song, I Will Always Love You. And basically Whitney sings it just with like piano accompaniment. And I looked out and everybody had sparklers or lighters lit and it was just a sea of lights. The whole first verse I don't play and I just kind of sat there and took it in. I was like, wow, this is what I dreamt of doing when I was in the dorm rooms. You know, that was the first moment I could remember where I just actually kind of took it in, you know, just like, okay, I can't say I, I have arrived or anything like that. Okay, well, this... I'll say, I'll say you have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that moment. I'll never forget that moment. I was like, wow. And I just, I just sat there 
and where I was situated on stage was pretty much directly behind her. So I just saw a spotlight on her. So I see her silhouette and a white spotlight and a sea of lighters and then castle walls lit up in amber lights. And I'm just like, okay, let me just enjoy this moment until I have to play the next verse. That's incredible. Um, I got to ask, give me a starstruck moment that you had when you were just blown away meeting someone. Definitely the first time I've only met this person twice, but uh, Barack Obama playing at the White House. I played twice, but the first time, and we played for the, the Obama-Biden administration's first state dinner. And I was working with the Indian composer A.R. Rahman, who won the Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire. And it was early on of me working with A.R. And yeah, he got the call to do the first state dinner because the guest was the prime minister of India. And so it was like just, I think it was just four of us. It was a four piece with playback music. I flew to DC and, you know, it was like getting to play at the White House was insane, obviously. But it was just like the first time I finally saw him in the flesh, I was like, oh my God, that's that's him. And then after the concert, they ushered us back and they put us in a line. They're like, oh yeah, this is to take a photo with the president and the first lady. So I didn't even know we were going to get to take a photo with them. So that was definitely like, wow. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well, that is a great note uh, to end on. So Taku, how do fans find out more about your upcoming album and your upcoming 30-day tour? I think that the easiest way is just to go to my website. Uh, I have all tour dates and all uh, appearances and all info and whatnot on me there. My website is www.taku.ninja, T-A-K-U dot N-I-N-J-A. I love it. I love it. Those stories just blew my mind. Oh, and thank, thank you. you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Voices Behind the Music, a Growth Network podcast production presented by Feed Media Group. We're on a mission to make it easy, fast, and legal for businesses to use music to power the most engaging customer experiences. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours and learn more about us at feedmediagroup.com.